We're in Mark uh, 10 tonight, again, 10, uh, 32 through 45. I'll grab a few Bible I'll tell you what page that's on. Did any kids know what a board is? I think that was in most of those hymns. A board, anyone? Room and board. Room and board. Jane Austen fans. What's that? In room and board? Well, in the hymns, I think, I think most of them said board in it. You know, as? Um, like a board, exactly. <laughs> a board of wood, yeah. The sideboard that the food's on, yeah. Yeah, it's the, the meal that we gather around. It's on page 1006, if you haven't found that already. We're continuing on the way to Jerusalem. In fact, that's how this passage is going to open, on the way to Jerusalem. We come to Christ's third passion, passion prediction. In this section, it's structured around three predictions of his death. And once again, it is followed by a correction of his disciples. Uh, first, Peter needed corrected. Then John, now James and John together uh, are corrected. Listen as I read this passage, and then we'll discuss it together. Starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant to us, uh, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be the servant, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So it opens. They're on the road. They're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for what's going to happen. And for us, the readers, this passage 
is pivotal. It sets the stage for what's going to unfold. It keys us in to some themes to be paying attention to. But I begin with a question. It says they're on, their on the road on the way up to Jerusalem, and they were amazed, and those who were following are afraid. What is that about? Why are they amazed and afraid? Yeah, Eva? Something powerful is going to happen. They're nervous about it. That could be. We might expect this after he predicts his death, but it's before he predicts his death. It's a bit strange, isn't it? That's a good question. I mean, Jesus has said, uh, at least in the first prediction, he says the leaders are going to be involved in killing me. So they are getting near, the pa uh, near Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Yeah, yep, that could be it. Trepidation. If you think I have the answer and we're going to lead into the lesson with that, uh, I, I hate to disappoint you. I'm not totally sure. It's, it's a, a strange thing. Uh, he did just teach about the rich man entering in and how hard it is for the rich to enter. And remember, they say that it must be impossible for anyone to be saved if this guy who's kept the law and done everything right and is well off can't make it on his own strength, then who can? He says, with man, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. So maybe it's just recognizing, um, as we talked about, uh, well, this is the problem with Sunday school and morning service. I can't remember what we talked about where, but uh, somewhere this morning we talked about that we're helpless apart from God. We're totally dependent on him. So maybe that's what it is. Um, I think he set a blistering pace. Sorry? I think he set a blistering pace. That could be. That could be. Yeah, it is. It's, it's quite a climb. Quite a climb. Yeah, he's setting a fast pace. He's the Craig Johnson of the uh, disciples there. That uh, <laughs> Craig was... Way ahead of the rest of us on the hike. Uh, uh, yeah. It was those poles. You hadn't used those. And then it's just, yeah, powering up. Okay, so the third prediction of his death. Uh, so, so he's saying things we've heard twice before, covering familiar ground. Notice again, he takes the 12 particularly with him. I don't know if that means kind of off to the side, or maybe they do kind of pick up the pace to get away from the crowd. But he's saying, first, notice, uh, it's the first time out of these three, he's said before, the Son of Man is going to die. But this time he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over. He's saying, it's not just, this is something that's going to happen at some point in the future, but like, this is the end of this particular journey we're on. The time draws near. This is what will happen. Notice this time the Gentiles are added in as, uh, as well as, again, reaffirming, as Hosanna pointed out, that the chief priests and scribes are going to be involved in this. So it's not just, you know, Jerusalem's a dangerous place and we might get mugged, something bad might happen. It's not just, I recognize I'm a controversial figure, but it's saying the leadership, uh, both the Jewish leadership and the Gentile leadership will be involved in this, the religious leaders and the Gentiles. The chief priests and the scribes oversee temple worship. They're experts in the Bible. And yet, what do they do? They are going to put the Messiah to death. In Mark 2, uh, Jesus forgives the sins of this paralytic who's lowered through the roof. And remember there, the scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They say only God can forgive sins. And then the next event is uh, Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And again, the scribes are there and they're scandalized that Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
uh, kind of reading between the lines, filling out the picture uh, imaginatively. I'm not saying this is definitively the case, but, but imaginatively we can see the chief priests and scribes are winning the religious game, right? They're perceived as the pious people who keep the law well, who do things right, and they benefit from it. They work in the temple system, so their livelihood comes from it. They're comparatively well off. Well, if they're winning the religious game by being perceived as not sinners, righteous, as, as doing everything right, we can see how Jesus threatens them by upsetting the whole order. If sinners' sins can just be forgiven, and sinners and tax collectors can just be included into the kingdom, uh, as it were, at a word, then what's the point of them having been good all this time? He seems that, you know, it's like we're ahead and now you're changing the rules. Remember the parable Jesus tells about um, uh, uh, the owner of a field who goes out into the marketplace and he sees a bunch of men standing around. He says, well, why aren't you working? He said, well, no one hired us. So he says, well, I'll pay you a day's wages to go work in the field. And he keeps doing that. He keeps going out three or four times. And then finally he pays some guys, or he, he calls some guys, and there's only an hour left in the workday. They go out into the field. They work. And then at the end of the day, he pays everyone a full day's wages. And the people who worked a full day are saying, this isn't fair. We worked all day. And yet the people who just started working in the last hour got the same wages as us. In a sense, that's the scribes and the temple leaders here. They're saying, well, our whole life, we've lived righteously, and you're saying these people have lived like sinners now. They're just in. The Gentiles, on the other hand, are non-religious. The Romans are pragmatic. They're the power brokers. Jesus understands how Jerusalem works. The Romans want to keep the peace. And he understands that the Romans will even kill him to keep that peace. Um, it's, it's the great irony that this period in history is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And yet it's during this period that God's own son is unjustly killed. What we see, though, from Jesus' statement here about what's going to happen is that this is not just coincidence. It's not a warning. It's thought out. It's deliberate. It's clear that he sees this as part of the vocation of the Son of Man. Notice he's saying it all in third person. He's saying, this is the role that I must fulfill. This is what the Son of Man will do. It culminates in 34 with this sort of crescendo of cruelty and violence. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise What's your response after hearing that? It's a bit somber, isn't it? Uh, at least for me, it's like I want to pause and think about this. And yet James and John come up to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Parents, uh, you know this trick, kids, right? Kids say, will you promise to do something, uh, Dad? It's like, well, hang on a second. I want to know what I'm promising before I promise to... Am I the only one whose kids have tried to play this sort of trick? But they're almost doing this kind of thing of, well, just, just do something for us. Don't worry about what it is, but will you, will you do something for us, uh, Jesus? Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Uh, and what do they ask? They want to sit at his right hand and his left in your glory. Okay. Jesus is saying, mocked, spit on, flogged, killed, and they're saying glory. They seem to have, uh, I can imagine Albert Sebring, you know, he says, come on, guys, that kind of a thing. You know, I, if you guys know how Albert says that, uh, seriously, like, come on, what are you thinking here, guys? This is nuts. 
But they seem to, with all three of these statements, they seem to be taking it to mean it's going to be a hard road, but in the end we're going to come out on top. You know, we're going into this fight as the underdogs, but we're going to win. That seems to be how they're taking it. And they're saying when you do win, we want to be on your right hand and your left. Well, for us who are re-readers of this gospel, we know the end here in the middle. When they ask about being at Christ's right hand and his left in his glory, we can't help but picture the scene on Golgotha, Christ on the cross, a criminal on his right hand and his left. I think Mark the intentional that we're seeing these together, that this is Christ's glory. It's not a metaphor. The cross isn't a metaphor that he's using here, this, this suffering. It's not somehow just something that happens and then the glory comes. The glory is through the suffering. Well, Jesus responds in an interesting way. You don't know what you're asking. He understands the severity of what's coming and he's saying, guys, if you understood, you would not ask this. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able, sure, we can do that. Uh, Again, they just don't seem, it's not clicking here for them. But what's this about, the cup and the baptism? Uh, It's strange language. Uh, It kind of comes out of nowhere in the Gospel of Mark in a certain sense. But if we're familiar with the Old Testament, it's actually not totally out of nowhere. So Psalm 75, 7 to 8, God executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Okay, throughout the Old Testament, there's this recurring image of a cup of wrath that will be poured out in the day of the Lord, the day of judgment on wickedness. Jesus seems to be saying that, he seems to be alluding to that Old Testament image of the cup of wrath, and he's saying, I am going to drink the cup of God's wrath, the cup that the wicked deserve, the cup of judgment on wickedness, I will take. The punishment of God on human rebellion and sin, I will take that. And then the baptism... When I preached this uh, several years ago through this passage, getting ready for Easter in 2020, I there took the baptism as also alluding to the Old Testament, a number of passages that use the word flood, which is the same uh, Greek word for baptism in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But I think I've changed my view since then. I think the baptism is going back to Jesus' own baptism at the beginning of Mark, where he's designated for a specific vocation as God's beloved son, uh, with whom, I'm, with whom I am well pleased. He's, at his baptism, he's, he enters into and begins his mission. We might say it's his commission uh, to do the work of the Messiah. And I think what he's saying is that this is the culmination of that mission that began at the baptism. Uh, again, that would be a way of saying that what's going to happen is central to my mission. It's not incidental. 
But then they say, yeah, we're able to drink this. Little do they know, no, of course, they can't drink it. But it's interesting. Uh, Jesus says, you will indeed. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. I think the sense here is that the cup of wrath Jesus takes, the cup of the new covenant Jesus' blood shed, we take. Christ is baptized into a mission that culminates with his death. We are baptized into Christ. And so Paul says, in our baptism, we died with Christ and we rose again with Christ. That, yes, we do take the same cup as him. Yes, we do have the same baptism as him because we are united to him and share in his death and therefore in his resurrection, in his life. I've been reading the Dune books, and one of the themes in that is that there's a sort of poisonous drink that comes from these giant worms, and the sort of Messiah figure in those drinks it, and when he drinks it, then he purifies it and makes it no longer poisonous, but now drinkable by others. If you're not reading the Dune books, then it doesn't help as an illustration, but it's the best I could think of, that he's, uh, he, he purifies, you know, the cup of wrath is death to a mere human, and yet the God-man takes the cup of wrath and turns it into the cup of the new covenant. Uh, then he turns to this upside-down kingdom ethic. The ten hear it, they're indignant, they're upset, and it's kind of the same power dynamic. How dare you, James and John? Why would you ask for that? Don't you know that we're the better ones? How are you asking for that? You think you're better than us? But it's this back and forth. And so Jesus doesn't rebuke only James and John. He doesn't rebuke only the ten, but he's saying to all the twelve together, you've got to understand this upside-down kingdom values, the upside-down economy of salvation. And it's that upside-down economy that makes salvation work, and so it's that upside-down ethic that we as disciples must practice. Uh, James Boyce in his Philippians commentary when he's talking about his Philippians sermon, uh, when he talks about Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality of God with a thing to be grasped but took on the form of a servant, and then he goes to death and then ascension. And, and Boyce calls this um, uh, the parabola, the great parabola, um, which I guess Elizabeth and Anya are probably doing parabolas in math, right? That it's a big, it's one of these big things, a big curve, downward curve, that Christ comes down, he takes what we are, but then he ascends and takes us with him. And that's the sort of upside-down kingdom ethic here. You know that those who consider, uh, are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They act like lords. Their great ones exercise authority, but not so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be the servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, we hear that and we want to use that as sort of a feint. I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, surely I have never done this, but maybe some of you, that you're at the dinner table and kind of at the last second when there's no dishes left to be done you say oh can I help with the dishes is there anything I can help to clean up right and it's a sort of faint right that it's uh you know I want to be seen as being a servant and yet you know I don't really want to get involved that seems to be I mean we can hear what Jesus is saying yeah yeah, yeah I get that I'm going to pretend and so sometimes in churches um you know church polity not I and here I'm not being sarcastic I genuinely mean I am not aware of this in the chapel but in church uh, uh, polity in the broader church, there'll be things where people will never, um, you know, they'll never really run for an office, but they really want that office, but it's this sort of pretend thing where, well, well, I don't really want to be an elder, but if I really have to be, then I will. And it's this sort of feigning to be the least, and yet you really aspire to be the greatest. But notice Jesus isn't saying, uh, 
I'm going to risk it to the point of death, but then we'll avert it and we'll get the glory. He's saying, I'm going all the way to the cross, to death. We must be servants and slaves. We must really do it. And then uh, God himself raises Jesus from the dead. He will be raised after three days. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. It's this upside-down dynamic. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we hear that word ransom, we tend to think of uh, you know, pirates raid a ship and they capture the people on it, and then they want a ransom to give the hostages back. That's what we tend to think of as a ransom. But the word ransom uh, uh, in biblical days tends not to be used that way so much. It could be buying back prisoners of war, but the most frequent use would be to redeem a slave. So someone got into debt, they had to become a slave because of their debts. I come along and I say, I will pay the debt for Ezra, let's say. I'm ransoming him back. I'm redeeming him from slavery. So to ransom is to redeem, which is to buy back. How does Jesus ransom us? He gives his life to buy back many, those who are lost. He gives his life so that we can be set free and have true life. Any other thoughts? Sorry, I didn't put in as many questions as I should have. Yeah, Hosanna. Uh, it seems to tie in really well with Paul's example this morning. And yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, Paul's got his head around this. He understands. And all the rest of the disciples get it too. After, after the fact, uh, once the Spirit comes on them, opens their eyes, you know, after the fact they get it. But, but, uh, but Paul himself, again, it's not, it's not an honorific, I'll be called a slave, but I charge you a salary. In some of the churches, he literally says, I paid my own way so that you wouldn't have any excuse for not listening to my message, that, uh, uh, that he really lived as a slave to all at times. Yeah, Jan. Do you think that James and John and the rest of them really thought that Jesus was going to die, that it was just, you know, that, that maybe he was going to set up his kingdom or his glory on earth? That I, it seems like, it sure seems like they think it's going to be some kind of a, it, that it's some kind of a metaphor. Yeah. You know, that like, it looks like we're going to lose, but we really are going to win. Yeah, because uh, it's so glib about, oh, well, yeah. whatever you mean. Yeah. And maybe there's more time between these things than Mark makes it look, but Mark is really, he's making the point juxtaposing it. That if we as disciples understand what Jesus is doing for us, then we have to, we can't think in this way, we need to think rightly about that. Yeah. And, and that it's, it's already prepared. It's already determined. Yeah, I, I take it along the same lines as where he says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father. That it's part of this divine plan from eternity of the Father that the Son is fulfilling. That, that's how I took the verse, um, understood it, but I, I, I confess I didn't catch my eye to dig into that verse more. But yeah, great, great observation there. Yeah, Jim. Yeah, it's interesting that he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Yeah. So they would be sitting on God's lap. Yeah, could I actually have God's seat? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. And then, you know, it's just interesting. <laughs> We've been watching the Lord of the Rings movies with the kids, and, and they keep trying to understand why is the steward of Gondor only sit, not sitting on the big throne, yeah. and he's sitting on the little one? Well, yeah. It's what steward is trying to explain. Yeah. 
Yeah, Dion. Yeah. We started with, uh, yeah, I was thinking of Craig and Albert out there hiking. Yeah. Uh, a torrid pace toward the mountain. And if you knew that death awaited you. Yeah. And, and you nonetheless set that pace. Yeah. Uh, those of us who were not in front would have been amazed and afraid. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it is this, uh, I'm trying to think. Yes. Yep. That, that, uh, determination. Yeah. yeah. Determination that, that weird embrace of, of destiny and death. Yeah. And I think I, I I I think putting that putting this together it makes a good amount of sense that they're amazed and afraid and they're saying well if he's really this enthusiastic about it maybe it doesn't actually mean death maybe it means something you know how does how can this really go together that this is the center of his mission and yet he's determined to, to, to go for it. Yeah, Jim. And then I remember Thomas, you know, when was that when he said, well, then we'll go to Jerusalem and die. Yeah. I mean, it's like he, he really knew they were going to go die yeah. at that point. But, I don't know, maybe that was why they were afraid. So. Well, let's turn to our time of prayer then. Great discussion, you guys. <laughs>